0: Hello and welcome to the February edition of Sightlines podcast. In this month's podcast we'll be chatting with Data Monitor Healthcare's financial analysts and discussing the recent trends in mergers and acquisitions, biosimilars and the vaccine market. First off I'd like to introduce myself, Ellie and Data Monitor's financial team, Abby. Hi everyone. Brian. Hello. And Sonny. Hey there. We're going to start off with a look into the vaccine market. Sunny, we're now three years out since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, and even now, some parts of the world are still feeling its effects. What were some of the lessons learned from the pandemic?
1: Hey, Ellie. So, I don't need to reiterate the whole backstory, as the pandemic played a personal role in everyone's life in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Trying to look at the positives that came out of it can be difficult, but... For sure, one of the biggest improvements was the rapid deployment and uh, development of mRNA vaccines. Uh, The situation created a spotlight where we needed something to deal with the pandemic as soon as possible. And the technology showed that it was able to create a vaccine within 11 months, whereas historically developed vaccines took anywhere from 10 to 15 years and would cost a billion over the lifespan of that development. Uh, Another positive that was shown during uh, the pandemic that we can take out of it was how government policy working with the private sector closely allowed for rapid approval of the vaccines. Uh, the experience actually ended up leading to a restructuring of the CDC so that it leaned less heavily on academic tendencies uh, for approval of drugs and more towards public health as the focus. And in October 2022, for instance, the United States government uh, has deployed a new biodefense strategy where its focus is to force, uh, forcing. Uh, rapid development of vaccines within 100 days, manufacturing within 130 days, and technology transferred to international partners to high-risk populations within 200 days. Uh, the funding for this actually translates to roughly about 16 to $17 billion of investment annually from the government, which is a pretty good incentive uh, for the private sector. And in terms of COVID-19 itself, we are currently still treating it as we are adapting boosters to every strain that becomes uh, prevalent across the globe. But the goal currently is to try to develop a universal vaccine. And it's going to be based off of how patients are, uh, certain patients have T cells that have seemed to a target other parts of the virus other than the spike protein that the current vaccines target at the moment.
0: As you mentioned, the mRNA vaccine technology deployed during the pandemic proved its value on a global scale. What other advances are coming for this technology?
1: Uh, interestingly enough, this technology was originally developed to treat cancer first. Uh, the pandemic brought up, uh, brought upon a situation where the technology was necessary to be deployed ASAP. So actually, one of the most exciting aspects of the mRNA uh, vaccine technology uh, blooming is the prospect of it being used as a cancer vaccine. Uh, recently, a phase two study of uh, mRNA vaccine with uh, Keytruda showed a 44% reduction in um, melanoma recurrence versus just being treated with Keytruda alone, uh, which is a substantial jump and uh, opens the possibility for other development. Currently, there are actually dozens of trials running already for treatments such as pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer, and melanoma. And the key to these uh, cancer vaccines is that they're not going to replace all current cancer treatments. So you'll still need uh, checkpoint inhibitors and all the other kinds of drugs that are available, Uh, but they're going to be a combination treatment where these cancer vaccines will be genetically targeting to each tumor type so that these these cancer vaccines uh, are most effective. And also, uh, they are not going to be used alone. They will be used concurrently with modern other treatments that we have available so that they will provide the most effective treatment. Currently. Uh, there are about 250 mRNA vaccines in development, uh, with about 100 each for infectious diseases and cancers. And earliest estimates show that uh, cancer vaccines might show up on the market and uh, in 2026, with uh, revenue estimated to be in the, in the 10 billion range by 2030.
0: From a global perspective, how will the vaccine market develop and grow?
1: In 2021, approximately 16 billion doses of uh, 47 different vaccines, valued at $141 billion, was distributed in the market, showing a uh, three three-fold increase over 2019. Uh, the global vaccine market is expected to reach $90 billion by 2030. And there are multiple different types of vaccines currently in development: nucleic acid-based vaccines, virus-like particle vaccines still in development, peptide vaccines. But mRNA, of course, being the biggest focus uh, showing uh, potential in treating diseases such as malaria, HIV, uh, hepatitis B and C. Uh, There's still major disparity in the vaccine market itself. For instance, Africa accounts for one fifth of the global population, but only three percent of that population receive COVID vaccines. And while there are 90 manufacturers of uh, vaccine existing Less than 10% of them uh, have the supply, reach, and technology to affect global scale. Uh, 10 manufacturers itself provided 70% of vaccine doses and 85% of global value of vaccines uh, were attributed to just those 10 manufacturers. So on a global scale, the biggest uh, project for the World Health Organization is that they want to increase this they want to decrease this centralization of vac- the vaccine market and spread it out further to wrap for rapid deployment in case another pandemic happens. Uh, the problem with that is that there, of course, high barrier of entry is one of the reasons for a lack of suppliers. Uh, the technical prowess uh, for some countries is a little bit high. And and again, it requires a lot of central uh, government development, which in some cases in the world is uh, some governments are not as stable as the Western world in terms of, of, of setting incentives to help develop local markets Uh, and also a high barrier of entry uh, for the deployment of the technology is the reason for the lack of suppliers globally. Uh, This should be alleviated, but as we have seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, vaccinations are a priority of the World Health Organization and they are pushing for plans to, for instance, reduce hepatitis infection by 90% and reduce fatalities by 65% by 2030. And that will only happen if they manage to uh, uh, decentralize uh, the vaccination production globally, which will happen with additional international funding.
0: Thanks for that, Sunny. So, Abby, what activity has been taking place in that merger and acquisition space last
2: year? Hi, Elliot. Yeah, no, thanks for that. To be honest, the merger and acquisition space have been quite a key theme in the biopharmaceutical industry, especially in 2022, where I think the large biopharmers themselves have been forecasted to have a part around 1.7 trillion um, deal making power. And we've seen big farmers like Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna, they have just have a flush of cash injection based from their top selling products on the COVID-19 products as well. And I think what's happening as well in the pipeline for these companies are a lot of the blockbuster medicine um, are, lo- are looking to lose their patterns this year and for the decades to come. So I think these companies um, are looking to take on both smaller, smaller biopharma companies to have a pipeline of newer drugs to come in. And I think... Look, just looking at the top five deals that we've had in 2022, we have Amgen and Horizon, Horizon Therapeutics, and I think that was the largest accusations that they've had. I think that was 27.8 billion um, in the rare disease space. And the upsized deal lent MGEN sort of a well-rounded portfolio now in the rare disease space where they've had a Tapisa for thyroid eye disease treatment, Texa, which is a chronic grout treatment, and as well. And that's been recently approved by the FDA for a rare disease for neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. And then the second largest acquisition we've had was actually Pfizer and Biohaven. Um, that was 11.6 billion buyout as well, which was um, a that um, a transaction that ended in the middle of last year. And through that m a Pfizer gained a, um, basically a whole lot of portfolio for their migraine and drugs, which was Neurotech. And this is expected to play a vital role in this drug makers battle for the upcoming patent expiration as well, because I think Pfizer is one of the companies that in the next 10 years are uh, forecasted to sort of lose out on quite a number of drugs And from this acquisition, Pfizer will be taking control of a large oral CGRP portfolio as well and helping to grow that franchise to over six billion in peak sales. So that's really valuable for the company. Um, Although looking at this as well, the investors are worried about the pricing problems that Neurotrack will come. um, Because you can see that there's a class wide problem, I think, in oral CGRP. Um, And then moving on from that. I think the second one, the, actually, the third biggest acquisition is Pfizer, again, because you can see from the pipeline of losing patterns, was Global Blood Therapeutics. Um, they won a bidding war, and this was for 5.4 billion, so slightly lower than for BioHaven. But again, this was to bolster up their portfolio and to diverse their portfolio for um, oral SCD drugs, Oxbringslow. And I think this reinforced Pfizer's commitment as well to building a 30 year legacy that they had in their pipeline on the hematology space. So they are tapping into sort of new areas and disease areas to increase their pipeline of drugs. And then I think the fourth biggest acquisition we've had was with Bistrol Myers Squibb and that was with Turning Point. I think that was a 4.1 billion buyout and that's... um, That's precisely for their oncology portfolio as well. And I think entering this Merzine acquisition, they increase their lung cancer candidates um, with a drug called Reportressinib. Yeah, so I think they have a massive unmet need for ROS1 positive non-small lung cancer um, treatment. And I think this will give them sort of an upper hand in that indication itself. And I, if this drug gets approved as well, I think the peak sales are expected to be more than one billion annually. So that would definitely help the company in terms of their pipeline drugs as well that are coming off pattern. And then finally, um, I think the fifth biggest acquisition that last year was with Amgen and Chemocentrics. And I think this one was three point seven billion. And this is to increase the uh, pipeline of drugs and the inflammatory disease portfolio um, so yeah I think looking at it the there have been more and more deals coming on towards the back end of last year so hopefully yeah there'll be more to come as well.
0: And what do you think um, has been the average deal size and what are the emerging trends we're seeing in this industry?
2: Yeah I think in total last year there was about the T1 total buyouts in 2022 and comparing that to the MA space in 2021, in 2020, 2019, there's definitely been more because I think there was about 25 la- the year before 2021. And then before COVID, we did have we're averaging about 28 MAs um, a year. And I think analysts are saying that we're definitely getting busy on the MA front because there's been more sort of deal making power that's been coming through the pipeline. But the problem is we are not seeing as much money being injected into the company. So I think the largest pharma MA that we've ever had was Pfizer and Warner Lambert. And that was in 1999. And two, and I think that was about 90 billion um, for that buyout. But the scale is definitely dampened because, as I said before, we're looking, I think, for last year, 2022, the biggest um, the most money that was injected into it was 10.5 billion. So if you compare that to 19 billion over 20 years ago, that's actually a massive scale. But in short, yeah, the MA activities, what we're seeing is they are increasing a in number of buyouts, but just the average deal themselves are nowhere near to the scale that they used to be in the last decade or so. But having said that, though, um, Having said that, we summed that the 18 largest U.S. and European biopharmers just for 2022 moving forward. They have over 500 billion in cash. So taking that into account and looking at this company, sort of your Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, BioNTech, Novartis, just those five companies themselves have over 20 billion. So it's definitely a space to keep an eye out because we don't know where they'll be potentially um, putting this catch towards. So it's not a definite answer to say, OK, we're going to see a lot of t- activities taking place, but they definitely are looking to invest. And I think it's a space to look up, um, an area to look out from. Yeah.
0: And one of the most recent acquisition news has been AstraZeneca's acquisition of Neogene Therapeutics what impact do you think this will have on their oncology cell therapy research and development and how will it proceed to drive the market sentiment?
3: Yeah,
2: yeah I think that was the one of the latest m deals I think that was the like end of last November and AstraZeneca in this space were looking to sort of move forward with their pipeline of next generation T-cell receptor therapies um, and they had promising potential for targeting solid tumours. So neogene therapeutics Chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapy offers an advantage over most current cell therapies um, in the oncology space. So I take taking on board this acquisition um, has definitely given AstraZeneca up upper hand in this space. So NeoGen Therapeutics are actually a company based in Amsterdam and Santa Monica, and they already had an advancing pipeline of fully individualized TCR T cells and targeting neoantigens as well. Um, So the pipeline has led the company to disclose drugs candidates NT125, which is a multi-specific TCR therapy targeting neoantigen developed to treat solid tumours. So I think taking this on board has definitely given AstraZeneca, like I say, another upper hand in the CAR T-cell space, which is an area that's... um, an area in cancer that's been moving forward quite drastically at the moment. Um, As far as I'm aware, I don't think this impacts AstraZeneca financial guidance for 2022 because they've just taken this on board. But it's given them a new avenue to tackling their cancer therapeutics. And I think most current cell therapy approaches in oncology has been tailored towards modifying the immune system. So I think this is definitely a space to look out for on what Echazanica are going to move forward in their pipeline drugs.
0: Thanks, Abby. An interesting and one of the largest acquisitions has been Bristol-Myers Squibb and Selgin in 2019, which seemed to promise to shake up the life sciences ecosystem for years to come. Has this acquisition lived up to its scope and has the company moved forward since then?
2: Yeah, I think this is one of the acquisitions where people have either sort of liked or disliked it. Um, I think Bristol Myers purchased Colgene for about 74 billion at the time, and I and investors were concerned generally because BMS have been um been losing revenue for the last couple of years, and then the acquisition took place. The I think with this acquisition, there were about five pipeline assets that were scheduled to launch in the next two years. However, I think they tried to increase this to eight as well, which was very sort of forward planning for the company. And that's why investors were a little bit worried just to see whether we could potentially get this eight pipeline drugs out in time. So over the past decade, Celgene have actually pumped a lot of money into the research and development space and have also been licensing about a dozen deals with rising drug makers. Um, And that's where I think the list included Celeron, Agios, Bluebird, um, John's Therapeutics, and Prothena. And what's how how they've sort of what how this has helped them in the small biotech area and space is they've led to discover and develop cancer therapeutics in the last eight years. Um, so they've really established themselves in the early days as a go-to partner for, for small and emerging biotechnology companies so that's how they strengthen themselves to have a great pipeline of candidates coming through as well and they're very good at collaborating with smaller partner and um, pensions and placing bets on riskier projects so that's sort of the model of their portfolio and they're also very clever in seeing the vision and flexibility of early stage deals rather than potentially drugs that are already in phase two, phase three. So they have really strengthened themselves as a research company. And I think that's what BMS saw in them. Um, so the transaction that BMS had with collagen actually led to a specialty in bipharma space in cancer, inflammatory and immunogenic disease, as well as the cardiovascular space um, of innovative medicine. So this 74 billion deal is definitely going to be a defining gamble for both the companies, because obviously they have they came from very two different models of business. Um, and so merging those two together is going to be difficult. But BMS, BMS have actually with Obdivio have lost a, a significant ground with Merck's rival Contruder. So they saw Calgene at this point with having Calgene having Revlimid. limited um, Top-selling revenue made to add to the revenue in their future pipeline as well. So I think this, for me, just looking at it as a whole, I think this is quite a smart move from BMS because I don't think I've seen any other smaller small company with the same model that they have in um working with biopharmers so yeah i think i believe that combining the two companies provided quite a significant amount of pipeline drugs for bms especially leading into the cancer area and i think the companies anticipate about 70 percent now of their drug sales will come from oncology um so i think that's around 33 billion if i'm not mistaken so yeah i mean for me i think this was quite a smart move from bms So we'll just have to see and wait and see what happens in the next five years or so.
0: That's really interesting, Abby. Biosimilar markets have been taking off in the last couple of years. Has there been any major player in the market that um, has made big steps in merger and acquisitions to develop an extensive
2: pipeline? I think um, Ryan will probably hit the biosimilar space a lot in a bit more detail later. But it's safe for us to say that... um, Novartis and Pfizer definitely led the way in the industry players when it comes to re- disrupting the biosimilar space. Um one player that comes to mind is Pfizer's acquisition of his, the Hospira deal for 17 billion. And I think this is intended to bolster their sterile injectable and biologics capabilities. And I think, as I mentioned before, I think moving forward, Pfizer does have an extensive pipeline of drugs that are going to sort of lose their exclusivity in the next few years to come. Um, I think the company have estimated that the global market value for generic sterile injectables and biosimilars to be about 70 billion and 20 billion respectively in 2020. And then moving on from that, we have a French pharmaceutical giant, Sanofi, with Aventis and that they're intending to offer 2.56 billion for a Czech generic drug makers and Teva so that's a space we can look out for as well to see what's happening with that um with that that they put forward And what we've observed in this space as well, there have been smaller companies participating in this with the likes of Biocon subsidiary, Biocon Biologics. And they have agreed to buy the biosimilar unit of Viatris for 3.3 billion. And I think that's also to combat um, the biosimilar market that they're seeing. Formicon are acquiring biosimilar assets from Ethos, and this is acquiring a right for one of their drugs, FYB202. And, yeah, so from there, I think we've also seen Sandos, which is a Novartis company, and they are a global leader in biosimilars. And they've also recently announced to acquire Pfizer's right to develop and commercialise a a biosimilar infliximate in 28 countries. So, yeah, I think overall, we are definitely observing a massive penetration into the biosimilar market, which obviously, with the loss of patterns and exclusivity, I think Ryan will be able to explain more about um, in the next session.
0: Thanks for that, Abby. And now moving on to Ryan. We've seen some biosimilars come onto the market in recent years. Are there any noticeable trends or surprises from the data that are out there now that some time has passed since their launches?
3: Yeah, so certainly a big topic here, and there are plenty of detailed reports with great data available out there now, um, especially with over 20 biosimilars that have been launched in the US alone, I believe, since 2015. Um, with that, biosimilars have definitely gained significant market share in the majority of indications they've been launched in so far. There is also some quick data here to digest before we get into any specific dynamics or interesting market factors I will touch on in a little bit. but. On pricing alone, um, with the ever-increasing competition in the field, uh, prices of biosimilars have decreased now with more competition at a negative compound annual growth rate of between 10 and 25% to go along with the prices of most of the reference products involved, decreasing as well at around 5 to 20% since their biosimilars have launched. Um, uptake continues to increase uh, pretty rapidly at this point. As earlier, um, biosilmer launches took up around 40% of share in those therapeutic areas. We're now seeing recent biosimilars launched in the last uh, two, three years, um, increasing up to sometimes 70%, 75% share in some instances. And these are all mostly in the U.S. and EU markets, which continue to dominate the bioslummer use to the tune of about 90% of the revenue generated um, that's obviously expanding a little bit more in Japan and, and China in some of those instances. But uh, yeah, 90% of revenue so far has pretty much been contained in the U.S. and uh, European Union um, at that stage. Uh, there are without a doubt a number of different factors leading to this um, that will contribute to the magnitude of the sales impact we've seen from a drug's loss of exclusivity date into these biosimilar launches. But two of the primary factors I'm going to focus on are... Definitely, the number of competing biosimilars launched and the type of indication that these biosimilars are approved for. Uh, so, first on the number of competing biosimilars, if we look at something like Infliximab or Remicade, it has seen biosimilar competition starting in late 2016 in the United States, I believe. Um, from 2016 onward, sales declined, but at a f- pretty fairly moderate pace. Um, this decline accelerated though in 2018 when multiple biosimilars were competing against the brand. Uh, typically, most biosimilars launch at a modest price discount, about 15%. But multiple biosimilars in the market usually results in further discounting, both on the wholesale acquisition costs and in rebates. Um, in Europe, on the other hand, we've seen a lot more competing players from the start of that loss of exclusivity, and the EU has also different pricing requirements, which can call for immediate price cuts of the branded version once there is competition. So there's more of an incentive to kind of cut from there. The national or centralized pricing reimbursement and purchasing strategies in Europe can also lead to sizable swings in market share quickly, which is what causes the revenues of branded versions to drop rather quickly in Europe. Um, these even differ drastically by country due to the varying systems and governments in place. So what you see in the EU overall could be different between you know, the five EU and Germany, Italy, et cetera. Um, The number of competitors is also interesting to watch because of things like what AVI has stated regarding Humira, which should be a pretty hot topic here in 2023, even as soon as next week. Um, AVI only reports sales for two regions, the U.S. and their overall international figure. But it is safe to assume the majority of those international sales for Humira are from Europe, given that ASI markets Humira in Japan. The loss of exclusivity for Humira in Europe occurred in late 2018. And for 2019, that first year post LOE, ABBE reported sales declines um, in the international segment of 31%, and then about 14% decline in 2020, and then 10% in 2021. So a big drop at first, and then kind of steady declines um, after that. It's theoretically will be a little different in the US markets, but that could be unique to Humira, given the competition we're seeing already. Um, Well, the loss of exclusivity for Humira in the U.S. is expected to happen early this year due to settlements that AbbVie has with at least, I believe it's in the neighborhood of eight biosimilar manufacturers at this point. Um, And again, as soon as next week with Amgen's Amgen Vito, which could, I think, launch, um, I believe they say January 31st is their settlement date. Uh, AbbVie has stated previously they expect the decline in the U.S. to be more comparable to the falloff scene in Europe. So maybe a 30% or more decline in year one sales, and then a continued 10 to 15% decline after that, um, which will differ a little bit from what we maybe experienced with Remicade in the US, which was 15 to 20% declines for several years after the biosimilar launch. And that's been viewed as more of a gradual staircase down, um, but Humira could see a bigger drop with, with eight people already lined up and multiple approvals ready to go for this year um, with launches. Uh, in Europe, Avi once stated at the time they still maintain about two thirds of the volume after about a year and a half of BioSummer competition. So, with all that, logically, the, the higher number of competitors, the higher the volume and revenue declines for the brands because of additional options for prescribers and purchasers, and just the higher probability of pricing competition, which we've already seen from a number of examples at this point. So, onto the second factor the type of indication. What we've seen as many more oncology products have had their loss of exclusivities is that indications that are treated on an incidence basis, see much faster uh, ramps in biosomer competition and loss of volume for the branded drug. Looking back uh, in just a year and a, a year and a half on the market, Amgen said that their uh, bevacizumab biosimilar and Vasi had over 40% volume share of the market, which is pretty quick given, given that time frame. Um, the market share capture in the biosimilar launch, and with it the Avastin loss of exclusivity, started in July 2019, I believe. Uh, fast forward to their most recent earnings and back to point number one on number of competitors, even in the biosummer space alone, um, and not just the reference product. The most recently published average selling price for Mbasi in the U.S. declined 37% year over year and 12% quarter over quarter. Um, with that, Amgen now expects continued net selling price erosion and declining volume from VASI, driven by that increased competition for both reference products and biosimilars um, in that space. We've seen similar trends for trastuzumab and rituximab biosimilars, which is causing Roche, who markets all three of those brands mentioned, some sizable revenue headwinds. Um, both trastuzumab and uh, bevacizumab biosimilars account for almost 80% of sales by volume now, and the rituximab uh, biosimilars are comparatively newer, though they still account for about 60% of sales by volume. Um, the theory is that prevalence-based indications are a little less likely to switch patients over to biosimilars, just as concerns still may exist about switching a patient who has been stable on treatment for many years and the interchangeability of the products. Um, these concerns don't exist as much for incidence-based indications, and in general are becoming a better, a little bit better understood and account for with, um, they're accounted for a little more of, of competition in the market, just with more players in the game at that point and all those indications, and then now new interchangeability designation that some of these biosomers will be taking on. Um, all in all, those are, kind of two of the larger factors that we've kind of identified and seen, which have contributed to the bigger sales declines over the last few years for some of those brands. Um, Over time, the revenue decline should still be sizable, but it seems that the biggest question here is kind of the slope of the curve of those declines. And that is going to be dependent a lot on the region that we're looking at, um, as well as just kind of how many people are playing in that market uh, in the U.S. thus far, we think that a brand can maintain about 30 to 50 percent of revenue over time, although a larger percentage of the volumes might churn to the biosimilars. Uh, international markets are already seeing much higher declines from biosimilars, um, up to 80 percent in some cases. But from initial data, it kind of looks like on average quarterly sales decay following um, loss of exclusivity has been about 15 percent from a number of things we've kind of looked at before any adjustments specific to products for things like prevalence or in, incidence indications, uh, number of competitors, and just absolute value of the revenues at stake um, that's that's being reported. For European figures, the decline is much more severe and abrupt in the case of larger brands, um, as we saw with Humira, a 30% plus decline in the first few quarters after loss of exclusivity. So again, it'll, it'll likely be region dependent and uh, in the case of Humira, with so many uh, people kind of chomping at the bit to get into that market, um, there's already going to be more competition than you might see for some of the other brands going off patent in the U.S. Um, another thing I did highlight on those two factors, I guess the size of the branded molecule and the market size will play a role here. Um, naturally, it'll attract a larger number of biosimilar manufacturers, Theoretically, for indications with large patient populations that might have big revenue pools to attack, the biosimilar competition will be a bit higher than, say, those in smaller or rare diseases. Um, We would assume that a rare disease with a smaller revenue pool, say, one or two billion in sales at peak, would have a higher revenue retention rate post-LOE than a drug like Humira, which has over 20 billion in sales at peak. Um, There's just a lot of people who would rather take a slice of that. Uh, this is because the cost to develop Bioslummers is pretty sizable, something in the several hundred million dollars range. So the potential returns must exist in order to justify that investment um, into that market. As more manufacturers come into the market um, and as the large companies explore that area themselves, they're definitely looking to mitigate that risk in order to get their slice of the pie here. Um, but yeah, if, if you're looking at something to play in, you're going to want to pick something like Humira with with $20 billion in sales uh just because you know even a little bit of that's gonna to drive revenue a little bit for your company going forward um it's kind of a lot of info to take in there but I think that about covers it from my end on that one
0: Um, in your opinion what are some of the notable drugs that we can expect this to be a factor for in the future
3: uh yeah so obviously Humira has the highest number of anticipated biosummer launches in the U.S. over the next year or so um but in general, biosimilars for autoimmune diseases and oncology indications will continue to expand the fastest. Um, that will include a moneymaker like Stellara, I believe in the next couple of years, and Actemra in the same class as Humira there. Um, Sympony and Solaris as well in the next few years. Prolia, Exjiva, and Bone Health um, are expected to have biosimilars come to market in the not too distant future. And then, to an extent, Enbrel and some of the bigger PD-1s in the later 2020s. Um, we're still a few years out from those, but obviously those are some some bigger drugs for the PD-1s too. Um, Ilea will be affected as well. Uh, we saw last year with Lucentis in ophthalmology space that uh, those biosolimars are starting to come on the market. And then, just in general, insulin biosomers will be an interesting watch just because... Um, of that interchangeable designation now that like Semglee has, uh, essentially we can see that they will be better labeled going forward and kind of better categorized in that sense. Um, We can definitely expect biosimilars to see several advancements in the coming years, including launches and more indications um, as more manufacturers come up to play. And now with the biosimilars labeled as interchangeable products, they can be substituted for the reference product without the intervention of prescribing healthcare providers. So at the pharmacy level, you can kind of show that this is a one for one swap and we don't even have to go back for a new prescription. Um, That could be a pretty big game changer with a a few of these going forward. Um, But yeah, that should only help with uptake in the future as well as people get more and more comfortable with prescribing biosomers and just their use or preference among patients.
0: And loss of exclusivity, generic biosimilar entry can put a damper on a company's bottom line. What are some ways that these top companies are trying to navigate those headwinds?
3: Yeah, I mean, so we can start with just looking back at the conversation Abby just had as M&A is a pretty big way they can manage the revenue losses here, um, whether that be in marketing drugs, um, bringing in new marketed drugs, uh, new exciting pipeline targets or molecules, or just even expanding their own biosimilar owner manufacturing footprint I think we've seen that a lot with some of the bigger companies and you know Sandoz and Novartis are kind of taking their own route on on that too um, whatever they can do to keep positive investor sentiment um, that can almost be just as important a factor there of keeping keeping the company afloat in the interim um, as they face those headwinds uh, many companies have already started to take other steps um, like raising prices creating new formulations um, of their own or by testing out next generation therapies to kind of offset or switch over patients. Um, with pi- price increases alone, when buy come to market, the brand would be able to offer big rebates to payers and PBMs, which can then help their net price um, stay competitive there. And we've seen that kind of a bit in the, the most recent years in the U.S. with price increases happening. Um, they're just a way to offset that so that When those bioswimmers come on and they are taking those discounted prices, they're just taking a a higher discounted price off of a higher price to begin with. So you kind of check some of that revenue loss there. Um, Companies have also added new formulations and delivery mechanisms such as auto injectors, which can help extend patent protection. Um, So if you just kind of develop a similar situation, you can kind of extend your patent life and hopefully push back that patent cliff a little bit. Um, we know that the new LASA franchise has been preserved a little bit by the usage of the Ompro device, even though that molecule has seen biosimilar competition. Um, Roche had a similar thought with Fezgo to utilize a device-drug combo to preserve that revenue stream beyond the LOE of the molecule there. Um, they tried to save the revenue in two ways there. Fezgo is the FTC of Herceptin and Progetta which is a dosing device that lowers the IV transfusion time to a shorter injectable. Um, the second strategy for revenue preservation would be to migrate patients to a later loss of exclusivity products, um, Perjeta and CADSILA in that case. We will see probably more focus from companies on transitioning patients to newer treatments um, to mitigate that loss of revenue. Uh, that will basically depend on what they can do to develop new next-generation therapies or new standards of care if that's the route they want to go. Um, Alexion is trying to mig- uh, migrate their patients from Solaris to Otomeris in order to preserve revenues beyond the Solaris LOE, which should be in the next couple years in the U.S. Um, it's also very likely that companies will just introduce their own authorized biologic versions of their products at a lower price in advance of the biosimilars launching. Um, which help protect uh, patient share there. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the larger companies are just able to bring potential manufacturing in-house as well um, as that starts to become more of a factor. Just as we go year by year, there's just going to be more biologics that will have those LOEs run out, and that should just be a, a bigger piece of the pie they can all take too if they are able to kind of bring that in to their own own company and at that point so um, there's a there's a few different ways that they can help you know kind of protect that but for the most part uh, it's really about looking towards the future and some of these companies are looking you know years and years out to to know when those are happening to use products to let them know what we should be advancing in what we should be switching patients over to Um, I think that's probably the next step of a lot of these companies uh future outlooks is is kind of how how do we mitigate these risks how do we do that going forward especially with some of these companies that have one drug that might be their their billion dollar baby at that point so moving moving forward that's kind of how they're gonna have to to think about things because uh as you lose that revenue you lose the the advantage of having that cash on hand to make those m a's to make um new products to, my, to market to the, to the right uh, regions, um, it's it's going to be a, a big question for them going forward um, for some of those companies that are making big money on a couple of drugs here and there.
0: Well, that's really comprehensive. Thanks, Ryan. Um, and that concludes this month's podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening and goodbye.